Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, tonight is the book of Revelation. This is going to be session 15, if you can believe it or not. We've been doing this for a minute now. We've got about 100 sessions planned. And uh, this one is entitled Lessons for the Final Generation. And what we've been doing uh, in this, uh, most recently in this series, is we've been staring at the, uh, the chapters, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the chapters that outline the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is a, a very important uh, part of the text uh, of the Bible, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the Bible. And I want to tell you that I have a conviction that of all the sessions that we're going to do in this hundred session whatever, if this isn't the most important one, it's one of the top two or three. I think this is one of the most important sessions we'll do in the whole series. And the reason for that, the reason I think that this is such an important series or uh, uh, session, is because the book of Revelation, as we've been dialoguing in past weeks, especially in our intro, the book of Revelation is supposed to be information about the end of the age. But it's information about the end of the age, not just for the curious of heart. It was written primarily. Now, there are plenty of others, secondary issues, secondary benefactors, secondary purposes. It was primarily written so that the church that would be alive on the planet when the book of Revelation unfolds could know what was happening right before it happened because they read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation's primary purpose is actually to prophesy. It is a prophecy about the future. And prophecies are not just neat information. They're not just spiritually stirring information. Prophecies are literal realities about future events that people who have an ear to hear are supposed to be tuning into, paying attention to, and preparing for. Tonight, I want to unpack these, uh, these chapters that we've been looking at for the past number of, uh, of sessions. I want to now talk about what I believe to be their primary purpose, and that is to inform the church that's going to endure the dynamics of the end day events to prepare that church for the lessons that Jesus always wanted the church to know and prepare for, and that he gave us these chapters and the whole book of Revelation, but gave us these seven letters as specific information, specific lessons to the church in the last days that we might be prepared for what is coming. So I think this is a very important one. Again, I gave you a little bit of recap here from uh, some of our other sessions, but we'll look at it briefly. Part A, the greatest relevance is still yet ahead. The greatest relevance of the book of Revelation. I'm going to read you these two verses that we've looked at before. Revelation 1.1 and 22.6. So that's chapter 1 at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 22, right after he said it all. Jesus makes sure that it's said both times. Before he starts and at the end. He says this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The entire book of Revelation was written to show Christians the future. Okay? Now, we've read the book of Revelation enough to know that it hasn't happened yet. All right? So that means 
If you, if you want to, you could interpret Revelation 1-1 to say this. The revelation which Jesus gave to show his servants what is still going to happen because it hasn't happened yet. And we could read that as, as a reality now. It has not occurred yet. All right? So the book of Revelation was given to inform the church about future events. Revelation 22.6 says similarly, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. You just imagine John like, I hope these words are not trustworthy and true. I just wrote down a bunch of crazy stuff. And the angel's like, yes, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, the one who, who gives prophets prophetic information about the future. John just gave you prophetic information about the future. He sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the book of Revelation is future. All right. Part B, epistles. So when you think epistles, think like Romans, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, Colossians, okay, epistles. Epistles are written for the church. Letters that are written to churches, we read as letters to us. When you read the book of Ephesians, I doubt you primarily think of it as a history lesson. When you read Ephesians, you're thinking, God's talking to me, <laughs> Right? There are seven epistles in the book of Revelation, and God's talking to me. It's not primarily a history lesson. It is God talking to his church. And we want to make sure that we understand that, because otherwise we, we glaze over these seven letters and somehow treat them like they're not letters. We treat them like it's something different. It, it's Jesus writing to seven churches. It's the main apostle writing to the churches, not the lesser apostle, Paul or Peter or whoever, writing to the churches, okay? We have these epistles, and when we read the epistles, we're not primarily thinking of them as a history lesson. We're primarily thinking of them as, how can I learn from this and do better? Like, live my Christian life out. The lessons have been relevant for centuries, but no more time will these lessons be relevant. At These times will be no more relevant. These letters will be no more relevant than they will be to the church in the last days to whom the book of Revelation was primarily pointed at. Okay? It's very important that we understand that. Now, they've had help. They've been helpful always. It's the Word of God. It's useful for teaching, correcting. I mean, the whole nine yards. It's always helpful. But will be the most helpful to the church that will experience the events of the book of Revelation. It's why it's in the book of Revelation instead of them being seven epistles outside of the book of Revelation. Just imagine if chapters 2 and 3... If it was like, you know, after all the epistles in the New Testament, right before Revelation, if there was also uh, Jesus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, okay? And it was Jesus' letter to Thyatira and Jesus to Sardis, and, okay? All right? But they weren't. Jesus made sure that they weren't. He made sure they were included in the Revelation that's about how the church is to prepare for the end. All right? These are an end-time training manual. These letters are very helpful. It's going to be a profound resource. These seven letters, we need to get understanding. These seven letters are going to be a profound resource for the church in the hour of our greatest need, defining our spiritual needs, giving instructions for believers, and also clarifying some negative trends that we're guaranteed are on the horizon. One thing about prophecy, you cannot change it. It's, it is intense. When the Lord tells you these things are going to come, you can, you can impact it. 
You can position your heart so that it doesn't affect you negatively. You can prepare a group so that that group isn't prepared or that group is prepared so that it's not impacting them negatively, but you cannot change these events. And we're talking about some significant negative spiritual trends that are going to infiltrate the church and already have. All right, so let's process these letters. So before I get into the lessons, because we're going to look at like, I don't know, 12 lessons or something like that from these letters. But before we do that, let's just get a little bit of like foundation on how we're supposed to process this information. First, part A of page two. We're to receive the letters as real. What do I mean by that? I want us to recognize that these letters, while they're intense, they were written to real people that had to really deal with the real information that was really being written to them. They were real people. It's so easy for us when we think about history to just imagine all of history as fictitious. Life didn't begin until I got on the planet. You know what I mean? It's like we have such a weird perspective about things. These were real believers, real churches dealing with real stuff. And in the same way that these letters were written to real people, these letters are being written and prophesied into the future, into the last generation, written to real people. Okay? And I believe that many of us in this room are going to see the events of what we're reading about in the book of Revelation unfold during our lifetime. Meaning these letters, in Jesus' mind, from the very beginning, were written as much to us as they were to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Maybe even more so. That is so intense. We want to receive these letters as real, not just words in an old book. Next, we are to commit to be hearers. We've looked at it in nearly every session for the last five sessions, but I think it's that important. Revelation 2.7 it's actually in every one of the seven letters, so I could have put on there seven verses, but I just gave you one. Jesus said it in every one of the letters. He said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the, Spirit of the Lord, uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to commit to be hearers. Let me tell you what, what would be really, really a foolish approach to noting the fact that this verse is in all seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That exact phrase is repeated seven times. It would be a very foolish approach. Pay zero attention to that phrase. That would be a very foolish approach. When Jesus repeats it seven times within the span of, you know, two chapters, that is a very important pay attention, flag being waved. Well, what does it mean to be a hearer? First of all, to be a hearer, you have to identify the points that are being said. You can't be a hearer just like in the spirit of hearing. Like, you've got to like pay attention to the details. And so what's written in these letters is extremely important. We've got to be committed to understand these seven letters. We've got to be committed to, that's part of the reason we've spent so many sessions on this, on these letters, is I, I, want, to, I want to help us make a commitment to be hearers. I want to help us along with that and kind of scoot us one, you know, little bite-sized chunk at a time. Next, we are to make their rebukes our warnings. We're to make the rebukes where Jesus got up in the face of these churches and he says, you're doing this and it's not okay. I don't like this. You better stop it. I'm dead serious, like so serious. There's going to be some negative consequences if you don't listen. We want to hear that rebuke as a warning now that we would not walk according to the way. We would not find ourselves in any sort of way on the receiving end of those words that Jesus was saying to those churches. We do not want to be like those guys and gals. We want to hear the rebuke. Why was it written? 
so that we could hear how Jesus rebuked the church 2,000 years ago? How? No. We have it written so that we would take warning, that we would hear those rebukes, and we would take them as warnings and go, I'm not going to do that. I'm not fiddling with that. I'm not letting that in my church. That is not going to happen on my watch. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what a hearer, that's what Jesus is saying. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And that's how we do it. Next, we're to embrace the letters corporately. We must allow, and this gets a little bit unnerving. This gets a little bit uh, outside of our comfort zone, maybe a lot of bit out of, outside our comfort zone. We must allow these letters to strike home by interpreting these statements that we've read in the letters and that we can continue to read. Good news is, you got Revelation chapter 2 tomorrow, next week, and next year. Go as deep as you want to, okay? We must allow these letters to strike home by interpreting these as statements from heaven about how God sees our congregation, our congregations, the church you go to, the church down the street. Jesus was giving us information about how he sees churches, about what he wants in churches and what he does not want in churches. We need to be those that are hearers that we take these letters at a corporate level, not just an individual level. I want to be a better believer, a sweeter follower, a, a better friend of Jesus by reading Revelation 2 and 3, but that's totally insufficient because these letters weren't written to individuals. They were written to corporate churches. We want to learn the lessons of the corporate churches and embrace them as corporate information that should be guiding and instructing the churches that we're all a part of. That's, it's important that we get that. All right, well, let's look at some of the leadership lessons because there's a bunch of them. I don't know that we'll get through all of them, but we'll try because they're, they're meaty. Leadership lessons from the seven churches. I'm in part three, page three. The fact, the fact that difficulties are coming. These, again, the book of Revelation was given to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay? And it would be, it'd be really silly of us to look at all the rest of the chapters of the book of Revelation, which haven't happened yet, which have future fulfillment, and then to extract the first two chapters, chapter two and three, to extract these seven letters and just go, I don't know why he stuck those in there. I, uh, they've all, all that information's been fulfilled. It doesn't have any future ref- relevance. Th- that, that would be so inconsistent with the way that we interpret Scripture. The purpose of those letters is the information in those letters is absolutely pertinent to the future. And they prophesy great difficulties are going to come within the church. Great difficulties are going to come to the church, rise up within the church. We want the leadership lesson Jesus promised Great difficulties are coming to the church. That's a leadership lesson. You live different if you believe that. You study different. You think different. You process information and trends differently. If you believe Jesus said difficulties are going to come against the church, but I don't want you to succumb to the difficulties. I don't want you to lay down, roll over. I want you to stand against these things when these difficulties come to the church. Next leadership lesson. The reality of our corporate identity. What do I mean by that? A corporate identity before the Lord, it's important that we understand this concept. And we talked a lot about it in these sessions, but I, I, part of the reason that we talked a lot about it is because it's such a clear point here in book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. 
point that I'm trying to make here is that our corporate identity before the Lord, that we would be not focused so much on our individual calling, that we would frequently choose our individual calling at the expense of our corporate call together. Let me just give it to you this way. All right? All of the ways that the Lord speaks about his people is corporate. The body of Christ, the corporate bride of Christ, the servants of God, sons and daughters of God, the family of God, the household of God. You guys with me? It's all corporate. We have made our entire Christian life about me and God. And it, it was never intended to be that hyper overemphasized on me and God. It was always supposed to be we and God. And the we factor absolutely necessitates that you have a vibrant life in Jesus. But you are not the most important thing in the kingdom of God. And we all act like it is. We take our individual calling as the most supreme important thing. And that's not anywhere in the New Testament. That is a very Greek idea. It's a very American idea, but it's not a Bible idea. Now, I don't know, I'm not saying you don't have an individual calling. You absolutely do. You are part of the kingdom of God. But you're part of the kingdom of God that we're all supposed to be working together towards ends. Not that I'm supposed to just step on whoever I want to, do whatever I want to, go wherever I want to, be about whatever I want to be because I got a calling. We all have callings and we all have too much pride that, that elevates our calling above everything else. Now let me just, I'll reiterate the statement I made a minute ago that I think helps interpret this a little bit clearer. We don't want to be so focused about our individual calling that we frequently choose our individual calling at the expense of our corporate call together. At the expense. That's not healthy. We don't want to choose our individual calling at the expense of our corporate calling together. Now, that's a lot to unpack there. That's, a, that's kind of a big idea. But it's important. When Jesus was talking to these churches, he was talking to all of them like they were one dude. He's like, hey, Thyatira, like you're one human. And everybody in Thyatira is going, but we are many. And Jesus is speaking to Thyatira like it's one person. And he's describing to Thyatira or to Sardis or Philadelphia, he's describing to them what they had permitted in their midst. He's describing to them the destiny of, and the calling of God on their life as a corporate entity. We have just made it so individualized. We, we need to downgrade the individual and we need to upgrade the corporate call of God for the church on the planet and then break that down into cities and break that down into congregations and small groups. But there is so much about the corporate identity that we have. Next leadership lesson. I didn't know how else to say it. I just called it the vortex of the Laodicean hour. Man, if there's not a weird quote there. All right, don't let that one get tweeted and get it on the internet. Brad said the vortex of the Laodicean hour. Um, here's what I mean by that. The vortex is getting sucked in to an hour right now in history that could very easily be uh, likened to the, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. This, this uh, half-hearted, you know, cultural Christianity where... Where they're, where they're just doing whatever it is that seems good to their flesh, still holding the name of Jesus, still holding meetings, still being together. But it's a form of godliness, but denying not just its power, but denying righteousness, denying so much. 
Jesus gave us this. I mean, we all, listen, no matter whether you knew the book of Revelation or not, starting this study, I guarantee you, you knew the passage in Revelation chapter 3 about getting spit out of the mouth and, you know, the lukewarm. You'd heard that before. Why? Why is that? Why has that had such a far uh, uh, spanning impact in the church than like Deuteronomy 3 7 or something? Like, why this passage? Because this is important. Jesus wanted this passage to get into the context of what the church, especially as we near the end of the age, is thinking about, at least that it's on our hard drive that we could bring it for recall later. Okay? Getting sucked into this vortex. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. You're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that's not how I see you. I see you, and what I see is it's wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Completely opposite of the way that it's viewed. We want as a leadership lesson to not get sucked into that thought process. Into that culture. I believe this, this idea is a growing and growing plague in the church in America. It is not the only place. I'm just most familiar with America because that's where I happen to live. Same as you, at least for the moment. And so, like, I don't, maybe it's happening elsewhere. I'm just scared to death that it's happening in our backyard, on our watch. Let's not get sucked into the vortex, okay? Let's hear the word of the Lord. Don't be like this. Don't fall prey to these ways to these thought processes, to this, this uh, plague in the heart. Don't be like this. Don't get sucked into that. Next, another lesson from these letters, the deception of reputation. We see that a couple of these churches, one in particular, but again, it's a message for the end time church. It's, it's, pulling the lessons from all seven churches in order that we at the end of the age could learn from all of them and not make any of those same mistakes and walk in far more clarity and a better thought process. The deception of reputation, it goes like this. Everybody thinks you're so dot, 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 fill in the blank. Spiritual, smart, Bible-knowing, connected to Jesus, really deep in your walk, whatever. You have a reputation. That reputation can do you serious harm, especially if that reputation is not accurate. Because what happens, typically, if you have a reputation, probably you did something at some point that that reputation would have been warranted. The problem is, we are not the sum of one thing we did five years ago. Our reputation can far go way further toting who we are and boasting about who we are and not even be accurate. And Jesus got all up in their face. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, for being fiery. You have a reputation for being the house of prayer. You have a reputation for being the fiery ones. You have a reputation for being those that know the word. It's a lie. And I'm not fooled by your reputation. Let us learn the lesson of how deceptive a reputation could be. That reputation, whether for them or for you or for me, reputation does not necessitate reality. We want to have the reality. And so it's a great question to ask yourself, what's my reputation? Like, what, what do people say about me? Is that true? Because if it's true and it's good, great. Stay the course and ask yourself the question again in three months. If it's untrue, deal with that. 
I mean, that was Jesus' whole point. It's not like, I'm so mad at you because you have a reputation. Boo on you. You're done. It was, you have this reputation. Let's get back to it, friends. Let's embrace the calling of God on your life. The end time church, again, why include it in the book of Revelation, the end time book? Why include it? Because the church at the end of the age, there's going to be so many places and groups and congregations and leaders and this and that that have a reputation of things that are not the reality. And Jesus is warning us about it ahead of time. The cultural climate will create the context for having reputation without the sustained reality. We want to learn that lesson. Learn it. Learn it well. The distraction of busyness. So bad. This is another one that's huge right now in the church. We think that if we're busy with all this ministry activity, God must be happy and we must be good in our relationship with the Lord. We can be so far from God in the depth of our relationship. I don't mean embracing every ugly sin. I just mean totally have fallen out of love with Jesus. The primary commandment is to love God with all our heart. You can be doing all these busy ministry activities and not be loving God with all your heart, and it's totally for naught. And Jesus brings this up in these letters. He's addressing the issue of first love. He, He gets in the face of the Ephesians. You just see him with that finger in their face. He's like... You've fallen so far. I want you to love me like you used to love me. And yet, all the busyness of activity of ministry can be a lying sign to us that everything's healthy and okay. And I just want to tell you this to help you with some discernment. Just because that ministry down the road or this one or whatever one, just because they're doing a lot and have a lot going on and look cool and got it, that doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. But we have such a tendency to equate big and cool and lots with authentic and real and good. And, and those two things are on completely different playing fields. It could be big and glitzy and also the most amazing in love with Jesus thing ever. But those two things are not necessarily synonymous. We need to have some discernment. We need to be looking at, we need to be learning the lessons that the busyness of ministry does not necessitate that it's a, a reality. It can actually be a distraction. What Jesus wants from us more than anything is our hearts. The subtlety and the severity of complacency. Complacency ekes in. It just Complacency doesn't charge the gate like a giant ogre that you can see in the distance running at you. And then boom, into the gate. That's not how complacency comes in. It's so subtle and slow and destructive. And it erodes. A great question to ask yourself regularly. Like, put it in your calendar or something so you don't forget. And like, schedule it every three months or six months or something. More than once a year. You could be in trouble in a year. You can't really figure it out in two weeks. It's a little bit, little bit more loose than that. But like every few months or six months or something, ask yourself the question, is my heart growing hotter towards the Lord or colder? Is complacency eking in or am I fighting for a vibrant heart even more? Now, fighting and winning aren't the same thing, okay? Just are you fighting as hard as you can? If you're super weak and all you can do is pick up a toothpick and kind of swing it like this, that is fighting, friend. Do not give up, and I will pray a second toothpick into your left hand. 
okay? So fighting is the issue, not success and victory and I'm more awesome than I was. Are you fighting as much as you were and more? That's the key. That's the issue of complacency. The enemy has a way of changing our circumstances and then getting us to compare ourselves to ourselves a minute ago and go, oh, well, man, you're not nearly who you were a minute ago when your circumstances were so easy, it was easy to be, like, good to go. Are you fighting or are you laying down? The eking in of complacency, the perpetual need for repentance. Jesus says it over and over to these churches. We talked a little bit about it in past weeks. Repent is not a bad word. It is the grace of God. It is the only way you go to heaven. You don't go to heaven without this dirty word called repent. You can't get in because you have to go, I messed up. I'm owning it. I did wrong. I need you. And Jesus goes, oh, I like that. Wash clean in my blood. Come on in. But it's not a one-time deal. We need to repent every time we do something stupid. The best thing you can do is have a reputation before God of being someone that repents all the time. Not a reputation before people, because that, that could be a lying thing. I mean, that may or may not be true, but before God. Does God know you to be one that repents frequently, quickly, easily, earnestly? These churches are confronted again and again, and Jesus uses the word repent. This is Jesus telling Christians, repent. It needs to be a part of your process, your lifestyle, your thinking. It is, you need to be a people who repent. The end time church would do well to pay attention to the gift of repentance, to the wisdom of repentance, to the cleaning of the slate of the heart, to the cleaning of the conscience. Repentance, it's so important, and it shows up again and again in these seven letters. The limitations of those we lead. This is another one. You go, I'm not a leader. I don't, you know, lead a church or whatever. All right, do you have three people in your life that, think that you know something about the Bible, you're a leader. You got a kid, you're a leader. Got kids in your neighborhood that think you're the the Christian, you're a leader. I mean, you're all leaders, so just so you know, you're stuck, okay? And if you're not a leader, there's actually something wrong. So just so you know, like we're supposed to be making impact. We're supposed to be light in darkness, meaning you got to be around some darkness. And there's plenty of darkness in the church. You don't, it, it's not like you got to go to the far-off mission field to find darkness. Jesus, again and again, bringing up the, the situation in these letters of the weakness of humanity, the weakness of people, and learning how to bear with and confront. Bear with in love, and confront. It's not one or the other. It's not bear with, meaning you'd never say anything challenging. You never bring a correction. It's bear with and confront sins, issues that are taking people away from the call of God on their life, that are taking people away from, from righteousness, from holiness, from the enjoyment of the Lord, from a hundred things, from fellowship with believers. We need to carry the reality of the weakness of the people that we lead. And Jesus, again, these seven letters, it's Jesus looking at the people that he leads. And he's looking at each one of these congregations that had leadership and the weakness of the people that they were leading and the weakness of the leaders that were leading. The reality of human weakness and yet not giving up 
on being tender and confronting. These are important details. We're heading into an hour right now. The false message of grace says this. Just don't give them a hard time about it. Just, yeah, they're doing that thing, but just, you know, boys will be boys. The, the false grace message right now says, you know what love really is? Love is letting people do whatever it is that makes them feel good. That's what love is. So support whatever it is that makes people feel good. That's what you need to get on board with. It's not loving to correct people. Lie. That is a lie. Jesus got all up in correction mode to these churches he loved dearly. We are to be like him. It is important that we recognize the human weakness that people are going to stumble and, and fail. They're going to fail. They're going to make dumb mistakes. And you cannot get all up in their face and be mean the first time. But you do need to kindly be there and support and encourage into righteousness. There is a place for hard love, but hard love only comes after soft love, soft love, soft love, a little less soft love. It's not quite as soft, but man, I'm smiling real big, but it's getting a little harder. I mean, it's a process. Lots of love. Love, 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 love. Hard love. Don't start with hard love, okay? Hard love, you're being a meanie, okay? If it's the first time. But you got to get there if it doesn't, okay? The, the human weakness factor. This is Jesus telling us, hey, you know what? There's going to be an aspect about the church that's going to stay weak in the flesh all the way to the end. There's going to be Christians that are real humans. They're not all, it's not like we just get the super friends. Now, 100% of the Christian of the church on the earth all just become superheroes in the faith. They're going to be weak and they're going to need tenderness and they're going to need rebuke. This is a lesson we need to get. The perverse allure of immorality. Immorality cannot remain unrepented. It cannot remain. And Jesus is confronting many of the churches in the book of Revelation. And I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, if, if Revelation 2 and 3, these seven letters, is a cue about what we're to expect at the end of the age, it looks like there's going to be a whole lot of sexual immorality in the church. A whole lot of sexual immorality in the church. That's, that's terrifying. That's like really bad. It's got a perverse allure even within the church. And it needs to be confronted. All right, well, look, we'll skip down here. Got a couple more there you can read on your own. I'm going to just touch on the call to greatness here, and then we'll end out and uh, do some uh, discussion groups. The call to greatness. The message, the bottom line message, really, if you really want to just get down to it, what is Jesus trying to communicate in these seven letters can rightly be summarized into Jesus giving a call to the church to be great. Repeatedly in the, in the uh, uh, seven letters, all seven of them in fact, Jesus gives promises of eternal rewards. Now think about what the difference between a reward, a cookie, and an eternal reward, a bigger mansion in heaven for a billion years times a trillion years. Those are kind of different. I like cookies. I think I like a bigger mansion in heaven for billions years times a trillion years even better. The exchange rate here is ridiculous, okay? I like a cookie, but if I do the thing and I get a reward, the temporal cookie, and I eat the cookie, it's gone, plus a little indigestion later, it's gone in one minute, and it's over. 
It's like, okay, I got the reward, it's gone. Jesus doesn't offer those kinds of rewards in the book of Revelation. He promises eternal rewards. He is calling people, and he promises their eternal rewards not for their sheer existence. He promises their rewards for a reward for specific behavior. He says, if you do this, I will give you this. He says it to all seven churches. If you do this, I'll do this for you forever in eternity. If you do this, I'll reward you with this. And there's some profound rewards that we just haven't had a chance to get into because we've got a whole session in this series later on on eternal rewards. Jesus is promising eternal rewards that he is after our greatness in the age to come and now. Because you don't give a great reward that makes you awesome forever unless it also connects to your here and now destiny that makes you awesome now. Jesus is after our greatness. He's rebuking the things he says, you don't want that stuff, get that out of your life. And then he says, you do want these things, embrace these things, get these things solid in your life, and I will reward you forever. Jesus is after our greatness. That's really what the seven letters are about. I mean, if you just need to, you know, go in there and write it up, like, what is the point of the seven letters? Jesus is after the greatness of the church. I'll give you a couple of subcategories, and then we'll break into groups. One, the call to partnership in ministry. We see in these letters, Jesus giving specific churches, specific assignments, which he's commissioned them to do, and he's looking for them to partner with him in specific ways. You know, I just, uh, I love to think about the brilliance of God. How many types of trees are there? I mean, it's ridiculous. One tree would have gotten the job done, and we wouldn't have known the difference. Okay? He could have made oak. Oak tree. Okay? And there's all there is across the whole planet, oak tree. They all grow the same height, and all their leaves and everything look the same. We would have never known the difference. That's not how he does it at all. He made oak trees to accomplish specific purposes, and then he made pine trees to accomplish specific purposes. He made this and this, and each has its own ecosystem and parts in the world. It is so nuanced. That's how God is. It is silly to think that the assignment for the church of God is the exact same in every place, in every congregation, in every part of the world. That is crazy. You know, it's all just supposed to look exactly alike. Carbon copy. We got a billion types of trees that are all serving a billion purposes, but God, when he got to the church, was just like, I, I don't know. I think we all just, we just all ought to look exactly like that. We need, we need 10 million of those to look just like that and operate just like that and be all about that. It's crazy. Instead, we're an organic community across the earth, the body of Christ, with specific assignments. Each congregation, each congregation, even within it, unique assignments to different groups, to different initiatives. And it's okay. It's not just okay. It's to be celebrated that this group is called to do that, and that group should never do that. Ever. Because they're in the same city as that. Why double up? Why not do this, which is what God commissioned you to do, and this group, and this group? And if we'd all take our orders from up top, the organic body of Christ operating in sync with the assignments of God would be purposed all across the cities of the earth. That's what's supposed to happen. Jesus wants partnership, not just reproduction of that which was down the street. We can learn from each other, but we shouldn't be trying to copy one another. 
We need to be on our face going, oh, God, as congregations. What do you have for us as a congregation? What's our assignment? And if it looks exactly like the guy next door, we either missed it or they did. Because, like, why? Like, they could just do, why don't we just go join them? Like, what? There's supposed to be variance on purpose. All right, keep moving. The call to intimacy. He wants our greatness. He wants, he wants love. God is love. And he wants lots and lots of it. I mean, when you are it, you're all about it. You attract it, you want it, you exude it. God is love. He wants lots and lots of love. You could have just died when you got saved. Why stay down here if it weren't for partnership and if it weren't for the expression of your love back to him? Here I am. I stare at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. This is Jesus in these letters. It's not just there. It's all over. Calling out to us for our greatness, for our intimacy. Calling us to holiness, calling us to first love, calling us to persevere. Our greatness requires our perseverance. Let me just tell you, one of the things that I think has just been coddled in our generation, it's just been coddled is, well, if you don't like it, just quit. I mean, if it's hard, stop doing it. Find me that verse. Find me that example that didn't get rebuked like crazy in the Bible. But we've coddled it in our generation. Perseverance is no longer on the list of things that we're training and, uh, 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 and striving for. To persevere. Perseverance requires difficulty plus time. That's what perseverance requires. Jesus wants a church that can persevere. Do you know what's coming? <laughs> we better learn how to persevere in our job. If we're going to persevere against the stuff that's on the horizon, the life that we have right now is it's our training ground. It's preparing us for what's coming. It's important. He is calling us into greatness. The call to overcome again and again. You see it in all seven letters. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will do these things. We must be, uh, learn to overcome. We must take that reality that Jesus' purpose for the church and for these letters and the church in the last days is that we would become a people that know how to overcome our obstacles. All right. So this time, let's break into groups. Okay, so um, uh, without the backstory part, just um, I made some comments related to the church, um, in my opinion, seems to have lost much of our corporate identity. Uh, and so the question is, why do I think that? Is that fair enough? Okay. Um, so the, the point that I was making um, about the, uh, it was kind of a twofold point. It was one, that uh, as uh, the church in America, we are just so um, focused, every, all the Bible studies, all of the devotionals, all the everything, it's all about us having an individual life in God, which is absolutely essential, but it's not the end of the story. There's not so many devotionals out there about how do you as a congregation have a life in God? How, how do we as a you know, corporate people have a life in God? How even does a family have a life in God? Those are far less focused on. 
And the emphasis is on us as individuals. So then that same thought process is then carried into a city. And so then what happens is each congregation is thinking if there, if there is some measure of a we and what we're doing, there seems to be just so much competition of what else is happening in our city, the other congregations or whatever, as opposed to all of us thinking from a standpoint of we're all saved into the one kingdom and all the various parts are so important that all those parts are played, all the individual roles are played. And uh, the reason, direct answer to the question, the reason that I think that we've lost that corporate identity of the church of God in Arlington, the church of God in, you know, Dallas, that kind of thing. The reason I, I think that is because there is so little emphasis on it. There's so little effort to try to identify uh, what that uh, church's assignment is. There's so little um, uh, effort. So I'm not even saying that's so terrible. It's an area we need to grow in. But it's more a, a, a reality check of how things are right now is we're not thinking as the corporate body of Christ. We're thinking mostly as an individual. And then in the extent that we are thinking as a church, we're thinking outside of being connected to the other congregations in our city. And so uh, I just think that there's a lot there that the Lord wants us to grow in. And I honestly think for the church to become the John 17 unified bride, which Jesus prayed, it's the longest prayer that Jesus prayed. It's, it's a whole sermon of a prayer. And it's all about Jesus praying for the church. And if you'll allow me to, praying for the church specifically and even more than all the rest of human history, the church right before he shows up, because it, the prayer that he prayed was that the church would be one as he and the Father are one, and that hasn't happened, meaning his prayer has not yet been answered. And if it hasn't been answered, it will be. So this is actually a promise about what's going to happen and what's going to be highlighted in the church of the last generation. So I think a conversation we're having in some corner of Arlington tonight about, you know, the church, we need to be thinking in a corporate context. I think these are just the little whispers of the Holy Spirit of which will actually become reality in the church in this generation. I think that the Lord's desire is to have a unified bride that will be walking in unison. The church in the book of Revelation is all under the same marching orders. There's no division. The church is operating together in the most dire time of human history to accomplish the greatest task the Great Commission, a billion souls, a number that can't be counted, Revelation 7.14, a number that can't be counted that's so big that just came in during the period of the Great Tribulation. The church is going to get to this point. But the way the church is going to get to this point is little groups have a little Bible study and start talking about it, and three people kind of get it a little bit more, and then you know one of them goes and tells their pastor, and the pastor meets another pastor, and they become friends. I mean, the way that the Lord's going to get his will done related to John 17, that my people, that the body of Christ would be one, even as I and the Father are one, the way that's going to happen is the way that everything happens through the discipleship process. And sometimes little moments that wind up becoming a, a, little, a little pebble that's dropped in the water winds up becoming a tidal wave down the way. And so I think little moments like this where we go, wow, that's something I haven't thought a lot about. I think there's got to be a, a 10 million of those little aha moments that the Holy Spirit is seeding into the church in this generation in order to prepare us for where we're going. 
because we're absolutely going to become a unified bride with a corporate identity operating corporately as the bride of Christ with the one mission with multiple, with many, many sub-commissions under that mission that don't conflict with one another and don't need to bother repeating uh, or reproducing, that, that are in all in unison to the corporate purposes that the Lord is uh, doing. So, uh, And I, even that goes back to hearing what the Spirit of the Lord is saying so that we can follow that and not just normal protocol. That the churches across the earth, broken down into regions, cities, congregations, family units, small groups, that the church of the earth could begin to operate at a greater measure of hearing what the Spirit of the Lord is saying real time so that we're operating according to the Spirit. Jesus said, I do nothing but what I see my Father doing that the church would get to a point where we're operating that way so that we could have that corporate big identity while still operating in individual missions that are all sub-missions of the big mission. So, next question. Caitlin? Cry. Uh, so the question is uh, related to the subject, he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, the most practical question that could be asked, how do we make sure that we do that? Um, and that on every level, all the ones I just mentioned a minute ago, individually, corporately, whatever. How? Um, just try real hard. <laughs> and if you're not trying real hard, you're probably missing it. So if you were trying hard yesterday, you were probably closer to hearing. If you're not trying real hard today, you're probably not hearing as well. If you try real hard tomorrow, you'll probably get a little bit closer. And to build a history in God of trying real hard to hear. And so, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. Lord, lead me. Help me. Little prayers. You know, your prayer life can really be super simple. Jesus wants for five-year-olds to be able to have legit prayer lives in God. So you don't have to know a bunch of big words or be able to pray long. or You just got to be able to go, help! And then point at something. Eh, help! That's a great prayer life right there. And so long as you're engaged and you're going, I want to hear. Help me hear. And you keep that as an earnest prayer in your heart and pursuit, you will start hearing. Or God's a liar. Like, I mean, you know, if you lack wisdom, God, who gives generously without finding fault. Okay, this is how it works. The problem always comes back to us, not him. Our, our issue is we get distracted, so we stop trying to hear. Or we got frustrated because he didn't speak that one time we asked him to. We're mad at him. God, you didn't talk to me. We're like, we need to learn a little perseverance, you know? And so the best answer to the question of how can we be those that are here, cry out to God for it for the rest of your life, and that will be the absolute maximum capacity of what you could have heard. Great question. John? Not a problem. All right, uh, Andy.
Okay, so a uh, short version of the question is, uh, the reality is, um, in our culture, and in many, we've become so focused on our individual life and calling. And it, you must have an individual life. And you must have an individual calling. And you must have individual gifts. So it's not against those things. It's just an overemphasis and then a complete de-emphasizing of the bigger picture. And that is that we're all part of the body. How did we get here? Like, how did that, what happened there? Um, I don't know the the history lesson of the answer to that question, but I'll give some insights that I think that we can see even in Revelation and in the development of the early church. So you read Acts 2. They were always together. American Christians hate that aspect of Acts 2 because we're too busy. So busyness has choked out the expression of the first century church. They were always together. They were always together. Oh, well, but, you know, in our culture, I mean, we make up all our excuses, but ultimately the church of Acts was always together. And because they were always together, of course they were getting prophesied over each other and there were prayer meetings happening and, and people were getting healed and the gospel was going out. And Because if you're around other believers all the time, they're, the Holy Spirit's in them. And the Holy Spirit then infects you and you infect them back. And it's just this great infection of the Holy Spirit moving within the church because of the closeness of the community. So the proximity of the believers all being together had some overflow. They were all hearing the same teachings, and those teachings were being addressed to them, not to to them as individually. They're, They're being addressed to the whole. And the call to action was to the whole. So when you read the book of Ephesians, for instance, like we talked about earlier, this is Paul talking to the church of Ephesus and going, hey, Ephesus, you guys got a couple of problems in your midst. I want you as the Ephesian church to start to address these Ephesian issues. Hey, church of, uh, uh, of Corinthians, you guys got a couple of issues we got to deal with in your midst. It's your corporate responsibility as a church to address these issues in your midst. So we see in the first century church a significant level of this was the reality. But I think that what happens is The busier we get outside of the purposes of God, the busier that we get outside of of a thought process of we are the body of Christ, the the busier we get, the easier it is to embrace teachings that say, you're fine, you can get everything God intended for you if you just focus on you. And I think it's a subtle ploy from the enemy to destroy the body because there's nothing grosser than just finding a finger on the table. Finger's supposed to be connected to the hand, and the hand of the wrist, the wrist of the elbow. We're supposed to be interconnected. There's not supposed to be a higher um, expression of me than there is we. And so, but we've just, we've gone so far from that. I think, again, a lot of it has come from busyness outside of the purposes of God that are, are connected to us specifically, and maybe even getting back to that hearing. Because let me tell you what the default is when we don't know how to hear God. We just look down the street and see what the guy down the street that loves God is doing, and we just do that. And that's way better than looking down the street at the wicked dude. That's way better. That's infinitely better. But you wind up taking steps out of the the purposes of the Lord, and then we all just kind of wind up just kind of washing around, you know? And so, um, again, I don't know the history lessons. That would probably be a great study for somebody to do, a church history study, 
on how the expression of Christianity shifted over time away from a corporate identity and a corporate calling and a corporate mission into a far more focused individual mission that we kind of give lip service to. Oh, yeah, I'm part of the body, but that we don't really do that much and don't really. I I mean, I'm saying me. Okay, I'm not blaming you. I mean, help me. I'm sick, you know, but that it's it's part of our culture that we are so just inundated with that we don't even know how to do it any different. A worship team, you can come on up. So the uh, the purpose with that that I'm, I'm trying to say there is it's so important that like we're having these conversations so that what if in the course of the next five years we could make 10% improvement? Epic. First time in history. It's going the other direction finally. Great. That's awesome. And then what if then momentum would give us another 35% over the next three years? It, it's important that we're having these conversations and that we're wrestling with this. But ultimately, here's what it comes down to. The Church of Acts, it said that no believer had lack of anything because they all gave to each other whatever they needed. And I think that that's a real fear in American culture. I think we are really afraid of that. So it's part of us that does not want that type of unity in the church. And Jesus desperately wants that type of unity. It's what he was praying for in John 17. But there's a part of us that absolutely is scared out of our minds about where that would take us. And that's how the church, I mean, the rich guy in Jerusalem sold his land that he was going to use for retirement to take care of all these new believers that just came into the kingdom that were broke and needed to eat Why did they need to eat? Because they were constantly together needing catering orders. They were constantly together so that they needed to continue to eat. Like that really happened more than once. Like that was how things were happening. And we are freaked out of our minds about the concept of my stuff also somehow belonging to you. And so that's it. That's a real mess that we got to work through. And we got to figure out what's the Lord saying to us. So this concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.